0: Welcome to Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshaldon. This summer we will be reissuing our all-time top 10 episodes. We hope you enjoy revisiting these episodes with us. The Witness to Yesterday team is working hard and we're excited to bring you the next season in September 2023. Thank you for listening. This is the Champlain Society podcast, "Witness to Yesterday." My name is Greg Marshalden, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Today, I'm going to interview Dennis Molinero on his book, "An Exceptional Law: Section 98 and the Emergency State, 1919 to 1939." published by the University of Toronto Press for the Osgoode Society for Canadian Legal History. Dennis, welcome to the podcast, Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Greg.
0: Now, can you tell us how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. Well, originally, my interest actually in in the topic, broadly speaking, started really in my undergraduate years. Uh, This was really when the war on terror began, and I was undergrad. 9-11 happened just before I entered university. Uh, the Anti-Terrorism Act of 2001 was getting a lot of attention. I remember hearing over and over uh, really how 9-11 changed everything and how everything had had drastically changed. And as I came to study history more and more, I started to get the realization that the way people were discussing uh, 9-11 was as if it somehow was outside of time, or that it somehow was just untouchable in a way, because it was so no, uh, so new, really. Uh, and then when I discovered Section 98, I really found uh, my historical example of normalizing what were once considered emergency or, or
0: exceptional powers. So how did you uh, um, keep up your interest in this area? It sounds like you've uh, continued to work in this area over the years. You've been highly focused on it. What's kept you interested in this topic?
1: I mean, the, the topic never really went away. I mean, it kind of, the the idea of, of more further and further powers being enacted uh, kept coming up. The war on terror never really seemed to end. Um, so, uh, and even in terms of, oh, part of my, my uh, study is also in the realm of immigration. So, these issues continued to stay with us for so many years. Uh, so, it just, it kept it kept it alive, really.
0: Okay. So, tell us, what was Section 98? And how did it become part of the Canadian Criminal Code in the interwar years?
1: So Section 98 was, it was actually originally uh, a regulation uh, that was created with the power of the War Measures Act. PC-2384 actually was what it was during, during wartime.
0: That was during the First World War?
1: Right, during the First World War. And so really Section 98 becomes a copy of that. That particular regulation was created in 1918. And it allows for organizations to be classified as unlawful, and so, which basically bans them. And then any uh, membership in these organizations is considered criminal. Same with the distribution of literature. Um, and organizations that were seen to be unlawful were ones that were considered to be uh, advocating or teaching the overthrow of the economic, political, or, or industrial system uh, in the country. And so on the face of that, it seems reasonable, except that things like teaching, advocating were not defined and neither was force. And so it becomes a means of targeting ideology. Workers on strike actually during this time are considered to be using force uh, to actually achieve their demands. And so the purpose of this originally was to target revolutionaries or suspected revolutionaries after the October Revolution in, in Russia. But the wording of this regulation and then of Section 98 uh, made it much more broadly applicable. So, for example, even hall owners could be fined $5,000 if they rented uh, a hall to an organization that would later be found to be unlawful. And halls are important spaces in this time period for things like uh, political speeches, organization, also for unions. And so really the Section ninety eight, when it's created in nineteen nineteen, really puts a chill on free speech overall.
0: Can you compare Section ninety eight to today's Emergency Act, the law that replaced the War Measures Act in nineteen eighty eight? What are the similarities and, and the differences?
1: Well, so really what happens after Section ninety eight is repealed is that sections of the law actually find a permanent home in other areas of the criminal code rather than than one individual act per se. So portions appear, for instance, in the in the present-day section of the, of the sedition, sedition in the Criminal Code section. Uh, I think it's 59, section four. It also comes up in the Defence of Canada regulations during World War II, during the October Crisis. One of the resolutions that or the regulations that's passed to outlaw the FLQ. The more recent, actually, incarnation of the law you could see in Bill C-51 that leads to the Anti-Terrorism Act of 2015. And where you see it, then, is in the definition of security, which includes changing or influencing the government by force or unlawful means. And again, those terms aren't defined. So rather than really one law per se, it's, it's the power that's been preserved in various portions of, of uh, different, different pieces of legislation in Canadian history. So I'd say the big difference, then, getting back to really your question, is that no emergency really needs to be declared. Uh, anymore for any kind of political policing. You don't need to create an order in council like you did during wartime. It's now just accepted practice. It's in, it's in the criminal code and it's,
0: it's elsewhere. Right, and uh, in the introduction of your book, you begin with a very interesting story that is uh, not very historical. It actually occurs on October 22nd of 2014, and that was the day that one Michael Sehafi Bull drove on to the steps of Canada's National War Memorial in Ottawa and actually opened f- fire yep. uh, with, his, with his rifle, killing one of the soldiers at the monument. He then drove to the front steps of the Parliament and continued shooting inside until he was shot dead by the sergeant at arms. Right. So what is the significance of this particular story to this earlier history of right. Section 98?
1: so this this terror attack really the the, the the reason i open with this is because it's again another example because this attack leads to a discussion about the need for more uh, powers more legal options to deal with with terrorism and so it leads to the discussion leads to bill c51 the anti-terrorism act of 2015 and so we get into things like the the threshold for preventative arrest is lowered so, it's a, again, for me, it was an example, a very current, modern-day example of how a serious event, in this case a heinous attack, uh, leads to the introduction of what were powers that you could really see that were often used in emergencies that become permanent. Uh, there's no sunset clause that I'm aware of in the in the latest incarnation of the Anti-Terror Act. So it becomes a, a sense of normalization again, right? You have again another serious event, followed by... The call for more tougher powers to deal with with a perceived crisis or crisis, and you get uh, again a normalization of, of emergency power.
0: Well, let's go back in time. Can you describe the political environment in Canada just after the First World War that led to the government creating Section 98?
1: This period you could you could really understand as, as being one where there's a lot of unrest, there's a lot of instability, labor un- unrest, in particular reaches a, a, a high that really never been seen before, a lot of historians now consider those years a year of labor revolt. Fear is also tremendously high in Canada, and not even in just in Canada, but the United States as well, and, and in the U.K., and they really fear a Soviet-style takeover uh, of government uh, and major strikes that occur in the United States and in Canada, like uh, in Seattle and the Winnipeg General Strike in 1919. For lawmakers, for politicians, this looks like their worst fears are really coming true. And so that's really the the setting, that's the environment that this this law becomes,
0: gets created. Right. And the interwar years in general and the Great Depression of the 1930s in particular really uh, did trigger political polarization. I mean, you have the rise of fascism and the extreme right, and at the same time a growth in leftist movements, and communist party membership in many countries. So, Dennison, Canada, can you take us through what happened in terms of this political polarization, and how Section ninety eight was used against the left in general and the communist party in particular?
1: Sure. I mean, this this is again really another another point in time. Again, for, once again, you have a, a moment of crisis, right? And really, a search for solutions to it. So. In this time, a lot of people were really thinking that capitalism was finished. You have people searching for alternatives, the far right, the far left, starting to seem more like, like, like possible options, right? And people are thinking their political leaders don't have the answers to these problems. And they start turning more to towards radical solutions. During the time of the Depression in Canada, you also have a conservative government power. R.B. Bennett is prime minister. You have a radical left wing that's organizing large demonstrations right, uh, against things uh, like unemployment and calling for unemployment insurance. The policies of the government even advocate, they're also challenging the government directly, saying their, 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 their speech, they're, they're calling for the right to free speech because their, their demonstrations are getting put down. And so this government basically has Section 98 as an option to target the Communist Party of Canada, which is really behind a lot of this agitation. And so the leading members are charged with being officers uh, of an unlawful organization. And really, for me, what's really fascinating about this particular case is how you have the Crown contending that Marxism is seditious uh, because the writings of Karl Marx are seen as inflammatory, calling for revolution, uh, while the defense is claiming, no, this is all just theory. And so what you actually have is Karl Marx's ideas, which are on trial in a courtroom in Canada. Which I've I've never found a case of before, and so whether this stuff is seditious or whether it's a uh, it's a way of viewing and understanding history, and this interchange is, is playing out in the courtroom, and also how to deal with Section ninety eight because it's a it, it's a part of the criminal code now, but it used to be uh, in its former incantation of twenty three eighty four, it used to be a section of the War Measures Act. So then, how does a an order a wartime order in council now normalize as a criminal code? Uh, he's part of the criminal Code, how does that play out in a courtroom when you're trying to try individuals in peacetime? So it's just a fascinating exchange, and a fascinating case for legal history.
0: Now, the interwar years in the 1930s in particular, you also see the rise of uh, movements such as the Ku Klux Klan on the right, as well as uh, uh, pro-fascist uh, movements as well. Why wasn't Section 98 used against the extreme right to the same extent it was used against the left? Sure. In the,
1: in the early years um, of the Depression, the extreme right really wasn't wasn't as active and certainly not challenging the government's policies of the day, um, so when it comes to things like unemployment and what have you. Had Section 98 been retained in the Code, uh, unchanged, after 1936, then it, I think it would have been interesting to ponder whether it would have been used to silence the far right. You know, would they then counter saying that they have a, a right to free speech just as the communists did in 1929? Uh, but really the, the threat or understanding fascism as a threat uh, doesn't really start to appear on, on the security services on the RCMP radar in any really serious way uh, until after Section 98 is, is repealed. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't really garner the same kind of uh, attention that the communists did in the early years.
0: So on that point, what led to the repeal of Section 98?
1: Well, ultimately you could... I I consider it broad-based activism actually was what really contributed to to the end of this law. You have a new concept for people that's emerging at the time, and that's the idea of civil rights. So, for instance... People recognize the right of property, right? Property rights were enshrined. Uh, but the idea that somehow the state should uh, guarantee or protect a person's civil rights, stuff like free speech, make it constitutionally protected even, this this stuff is new. And so in, in a strange way, it's actually Section 98 that triggers these discussions, right? And and the movement to repeal the law. So it's you could almost say it's the illiberalism that emerges with Section 98, that leads Canadians to recognize the need to protect liberal rights. They <laughs> see themselves as this is an important part of who we are in the state to protect these rights. And so then Section 98 is now no longer seen as a uh, as, as a means of preserving security. It's actually seen as a threat to people's uh, security and by, by threatening their, their rights. And so really it's a broad-based movement that, that brings it down.
0: Well, there was also an event, though, that mobilized this uh, opposition, wasn't there? Uh, The murder of Nicholas Zinchuk and the brutality of the Montreal police at Zinchuk's funeral. Can you describe that?
1: Sure. So what happened with what was also occurring, so Section 98 is in in the criminal code. But what it's also leading to is just a general uh, crackdown on anyone that's perceived to be too far left, communist, uh, what have you. And so Nick Zinczuk was, was a Polish immigrant. As far as I could ever determine, he wasn't a communist, he wasn't a member of any kind of a communist group. His, his uh, fellow roomer, roommates at his rooming house were getting evicted, uh, he shows up um, to a, a sizable crowd that's, that's emerged uh, in support of the people getting evicted. This is in a Polish Jewish community uh, in Montreal, and so he there's there's three policemen guarding the entrance. He approaches them. He asks uh, if he could just get in and get his stuff. Uh, he's told no. Everything's getting loaded up onto a truck and taken away by the by the court bailiffs. And so then there's conflicting stories about what happens next. He um, some accounts have him going to the, 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 the truck and grabbing an iron bar and attacking police, that's from the bailiff and the, and the police, but the vast majority of witnesses, people who were not involved in any of this, just passerbys, said that he had turned uh, their back, he had turned his back to the police officer uh, and was shot, uh, and he died. Zappa, the, the, the police officer that was eventually uh, brought in, gave a, uh, gave a statement immediately after uh, to Toronto, uh, not Toronto Star. The uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the Montreal paper, but I think it was
0: the Montreal Gazette. Gazette. Yeah,
1: uh, gave, gives gives a, a statement to the Gazette right that night, um, and uh, and says that he's asked directly by the reporter with the supervisor present, "Why did you shoot uh, Zinchuk And he smiles and says, "Because he was a communist." So you you get this sense, of, and this really galvanizes people in Montreal. What happens after this is. He's exonerated, he's cleared of any crimes. but right before his final investigation is concluded, there's a funeral uh, for Zenchuk in which there's roughly 15,000 people that come out in a, in a procession uh, making their way to the funeral home. and roughly a, a couple of, several hundred uh, police officers on horseback and in plain clothes charge into the crowd. Uh, the crowd's peaceful, they're just marching, they're just quietly walking. In procession, and they are attacked uh, by the police. Even a, a son of a who, who's a, a son of one of the homicide investigators, who's a reporter for the Gazette, is attacked and beaten. Um, and F.R. Scott uh, witnesses this, and you know, prominent uh, place he has in legal history and and in Canadian history, and he sees all this violence occurring, uh, and these innocent people just getting attacked. And this also helps galvanize support then to, you know, what's going on in Canadian society that if this is just being openly conducted against people, this kind of a violence uh, based on on politics or or what perceived politics that people have. Uh, And he really gets behind the idea that Section 98 has to be repealed because it's contributing uh, to a lot of this violence.
0: Right. F.R. Scott as a constitutional lawyer and, and a major member of the League for Social Reconstruction and a social democrat. So after the repeal of Section 98, was there a change in the nature of what you call the security state in Canada?
1: There, What what I see changing really is, is, is more of an acceleration, you could say, uh, or a normalizing. I mean, the Padlock Act comes into play in Quebec. Um this is used by Primer Duplessis and, and the Union Nationale, and, and its similarities to Section 98 are very apparent. FR Scott points this out, right, that it owed much of its, its, its sections to Section 98, right? The Padlock Act you know, allowed for buildings to be shuttered if they're used for communist meetings, whereas Section 98, um, at, at least an organization has to have its thing in court and be found unlawful before you could take any action. But the Padlock Act made no such requirement, so it just right away you you could you could shutter a building. Uh, so and also as I as I mentioned earlier, you get Section ninety eight appearing in, in in various portions of, of law in Canada. So um, you really get a sense of a, a, a you get a, a normalizing of things like political policing in Canadian law. It becomes acceptable
0: practice. So what are the longer-term policy lessons do you think we as Canadians can draw from this history of Section 98?
1: I think really the importance of having a pretty thorough examination and a debate about, what, about the creation of new powers. Right? Section 98, really above all else to me, really demonstrates that creating security powers is a relatively easy process in terms of the actual process that takes place. It's harder, right, in the long term for a society to come together and say, you know, we we feel secure enough now that uh, we don't need these kinds of laws anymore. Right? That doesn't happen very often. And so law, I think, often is seen as this kind of a security blanket, that as long as a, a new law or a new power is created, you know, that's going to keep us safe. Uh, rather than examining a culture that we're in, why we have the problems we do, and trying to find a broad range that may include law, but a broad range of policy options to try to solve a problem. I don't, I don't see it as a, as a case of, uh, you know, sometimes often portrayed as the as 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 security services looking for a power grab or something like this, or a, a right wing versus a left wing problem. It's just more of a societal problem, a cultural problem. Right? People support uh, these things. Uh, there's widespread support for it. And so really, you know, the dangers of this long term is that the boundaries, I argue in this book, between the norm and the emergency are really illusory. And so knowing that then, I'd say the consequences of society really continually kind of reaching for the next emergency law, the most drastic, uh, to try and solve a security dilemma, the effect of this in the past has been cumulative, right? And so... I think we really need to think where we're going to go if more laws like Section 98 or worse start to become you know, seen as normal in every day.
0: Well, Dennis, thank you so much for this interview.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Craig.
0: My guest today was Dennis Molinaro. He teaches history at Trent University and the University of Toronto. He's also the author of An Exceptional Law, Section 98 and the Emergency State 1919 to 1939, published by the University of Toronto Press for the Osgoode Society for Canadian Legal History in 2017. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Sumit Dami. I want to thank you all for joining us today.